Oh, well then my hat's off to Joan for pointing that out. Yeah, um, so. But we've all fallen into the spay and neuter phrase. So I'm afraid it's going to stick. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that in your tract, uh, we are only are, are allowed to say ovariectomy or orchidectomy. Oh, okay. So you remove this specific organ and yeah. so make it even more specific. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Little. And this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. This is the Purr Podcast. It is. It is. Um, and it is a, uh, I think, an especially happy one for us because we get to talk to one of at least my favorite people. All time favorites. Yes. And that's Dr. Leslie Lyons. Hi, Leslie. Hi there. Hey, it's Leslie Lyons from University of Missouri. How you guys doing? Yes, you two are m amongst my favorite people, too. <laughs> And I was recently talking with my, um, just, just a few minutes ago, speaking with my old lab manager who now works at UC Davis VGL, Robert Gron. Yeah. And Rob says hello and sends hugs and kisses to you. Oh, I remember Rob. We went to Egypt. Yep. Rob was on our Egypt trip. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Spe speaking of which, y Yola and I and some other people are hoping to head back to Egypt next year but yeah that brings back memories of our of our trip um trying to run down cats in the streets of various <laughs> cities and towns in Egypt to get mouth swabs for for D for Leslie's DNA project <laughs> so this was not the trip of National Geographic then it was it, it was oh. it was so we we got a production out of it, uh, Science of Cats, with yeah. it's an explorer episode on National Geographic, and then also that data helped us to prove that later when we genetically um, checked some mummy samples, cat mummy samples, we found that the cat mummies had the same DNA types as the cats that were running around Egypt, which was rare compared to the rest of the world. So that tells you that the cats of the pharaohs are still lurking around Egypt. So wow. uh, everybody can get a, have a cat of the pharaoh if you're living in Egypt right now. And and this is so interesting because now we're getting into the, the depths of e Egyptology on this fantastic per, uh, per podcast. Because, Leslie, the whole discussion about um the pharaohs itself especially the 18th century or 18th dynasty pharaohs are based on a study where they looked they took dna samples from the pharaohs and then they looked at you know where does tutankhamun come from you know who oh. are his parents and there's so much discussion about it because a lot of people say that study wasn't really done that well um and you cannot find that because the you know because of the mummification and the changes and that sort of DNA that you really cannot decide if it is uh, a real relative. How do you feel about that? Well, that it is uh, it is tremendously hard because when we talk about doing ancient DNA, which is becoming far more popular, it's a very sexy area to be in these days. Mm. Um, usually, you're finding those samples in permafrost. 
and mm. areas where the DNA has been preserved very well. Yeah. In Egypt, those tombs have, uh, sometimes they spontaneously combust that inside the, the tomb gets so hot. So a lot of the mummies are all burnt up because it, of spontaneous combustion. So yeah, I've had some people doubt actually our work even mm. in um even in the cat world but then i sent the bones to them and so it's been done a second time so our data actually got replicated by a completely different lab and and the other problem is you have to really have clean labs and and because modern dna of humans can contaminate what yeah. you're doing with the ancient human dna but with cats we're looking at a cat but mm. we would mostly have human contamination but you can tell that apart and um so one you have to have a really really clean lab and sometimes that's hard to do one person you know opens the door it can it can mess things up mm. and uh and then keeping away the human contamination is is very difficult as well so they they did the best job they could yeah. Um, but maybe newer techniques now could could be done as well. But you only have so much sample, and and they're finding that the favorite bone to use now is called the petrous bone, and that's inside the skull. Oh yeah, so, yeah. So to get to that is kind of tough. Mm. And um, so before we were trying to use teeth and things like that that you could get easily a hold of, and now it's moved to the thing to use is the petrous bone. But um, yeah, it you know everything kind of needs to do be replicated, and um, uh, they did the best job that they could at, yeah. at that time. Yeah. So we still and, don't know who the father and mother of Tutankhamun. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, just just because finding the right mummy and and all those tombs were raided yeah. in in antiquity, not recently. They were raided right after they were buried. People went and dug them back up and and took all the stuff out of it and destroyed the mummies and. And things like that so um yeah it's a it's a tough science to do yeah they found a cache with a lot of the royal mummies all stuck together so at a certain time they got all the royal mummies together and put them in a cache or a couple of caches but it's difficult to find out who are the right some it, there was clear description on them but in a lot of them it's just a female older female and right. so they're really right. trying to find out what then the relationship is between all those because there yeah, was of they course a label them very well because they didn't expect for them to be stolen out of their tombs no. No, no, <laughs> and, no. the, and the tombs had all the information but they're just stolen and now chucked in some pile somewhere so there's there's no data to go with them and there was quite a lot of inbreeding going on there too so there was uh, yeah know... that makes it tricky too yeah. <laughs> yeah. and they're they're very ancient right so i i can imagine like a thousand years after some of the earlier mem uh, mummies there's egyptians like i who 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 the heck is that we just let's just reuse the tomb nobody even remembers who she was let's just that's right we, we found that out on on our project because uh where we got our cats with dr zv in saqqara yeah. was the ancient tomb of uh, Maya, who was the wet nurse for oh, King cool. Tut. Yep. And yep. so her tomb got reused a thousand years later. Remember, you know, they, they don't have all this documented. Nobody has no idea who yep. that person is anymore. Yep. And they just reused it to stick mummies in it. Yeah. And um, so a lot of tombs got reused as well. So um, yeah, she got yeah. reused. And then the word house. ancient DNA, what's uh, interesting now is the word ancient DNA is moving 
where when I think ancient DNA, I'm thinking dinosaurs, right? Yeah. I'm thinking right. mammoths and dinosaurs. That's ancient, right? Yeah. But but when you're talking about mummies, cat mummies, uh, human mummies in Egypt, that's only three, five, eight thousand years ago. Is mm. that ancient? And then <laughs> uh, and then now they're doing you know cats that are stuck in the walls of homes in Britain and stuff, which are a few hundred years yeah. old to maybe a thousand or so. And they're still calling that ancient. Mm -hmm. So yeah, ancient DNA is getting better, but that's also because they're moving the word ancient a little forward. Time, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, uh, remind me, Leslie. So comparing the, the DNA sort of profiles that you got out of the mummified cats in Egypt, um, how different would that be from like a domestic cat in your house today? Like, are they very little relative change over, over time? Yeah, very, yeah. very little uh, time change between these cats. Um, yeah. We, we can distinguishly distinguish them apart genetically, but they look the same. They talk the same, you know, yeah. and, and all that. Um, so remember, we also did mitochondrial DNA and, and now ancient DNA can actually do whole genome sequencing. And, and so that has, has changed as well. So the mitochondrial types were kind of more specific to the Near East. And we didn't see those mitochondrial types like in the US or in Southeast Asia. So that's telling you, oh, well, once cats invade a place, yeah, they kind of stay there. And right. you can pick some up and take them to a new area and they'll be a little bit um, diverse. But, you know, even the cats 400 years ago that went to Australia, you can tell they have the same genetic signature as the cats in Great Britain. So just, just remind us what mitochondrial DNA is again. Yeah, mitochondrial DNA. So you have two types of DNA in your body. So in your cells, you have the brain center of the cell, which is called the nucleus. And that's where all your chromosomes are. And so humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, so 46 total chromosomes. One of those pairs is the XX or XY. Where cats have at less, they have 19 pairs of chromosomes, including XX, XY. And that's, they're in the nucleus of the, uh, of the cell. But outside of the cell, are things called mitochondria. And so there are these little packets and they have their own DNA. And that DNA is very, very um, efficient. So there's no introns or anything in there. And the mitochondria is controls the genes that gives your body energy. And uh, so they gotta be working real fast and real hard. And any cell, any one cell will have dozens to hundreds of mitochondria. Some cells have more like muscle cells and heart cells and because they have to produce so much energy. So only very specific genes are coded in the mitochondria and most of them have to do like their cytochrome B is in there and NADH, which is part of redox reactions and stuff. And your transfer RNAs are also in there. So um, very small bit of the genome, only about 16 to 17,000 base pairs, where the DNA in the nucleus is more like 2.4 billion base pairs. Um, so the mitochondria, and, and since there's so much of it, um, and it doesn't tend to get damaged as 
easily as the nuclear genome. That's why historically ancient DNA has gone after mitochondrial. And a lot of forensic projects yeah. do mitochondria as well because there's more DNA, it degrades less, and you can get signatures. You can get specific signatures from mitochondrial DNA. So is it then true that the DNA in, uh, in mitochondria are better conserved compared to DNA in the nucleus, or does that not make a difference? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. If there are areas that are, have a lot of variation, and that's what's in what we call the control region, uh, but the genes are very, very well conserved because if you mess up those genes, then you're messing up the energy source of your cells. And there are diseases that are called mitochondrial diseases. And, you know, I don't think we've ever described any in a cat, maybe a dog, but certainly there are quite a few mitochondrial diseases that are recognized in humans and they have a different inheritance pattern. Then. So, right, I was gonna ask you that. It's not yeah. inherited the same. Like right, it has to come from mom, right? So you'll see a mom transmission of this. And, uh, and so then that's one of the clues to figure out that something's mitochondrial. Right, so this is mother to daughter to daughter to daughter, et cetera, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now sperm actually have mitochondria, but they stick it all in the tail because the tail has to be the place where it's really spinning and creating a lot of energy, right? Right. But once the, the uh, sperm fertilizes yeah. the egg, the tail is the gone. The head goes in and the yeah. tail falls off. So very little contribution comes from the father. Every once in a while, you might see one of his types slip into, a, into an oocyte and into the developing um, embryo, but, but not too much, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. So That's it's there creating energy to spin the tail. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knew? But I'm surprised <laughs> that there are no uh, well-known mitochondrial diseases in cats. I yes, mean, yes, yeah, it, we, I, I look for them. I pay attention, but, uh, but not a lot in dogs either. Mm. So. Interesting. Yeah. They would be pretty detrimental if they were there. So, yeah. Mm. So, so generally the mitochondrial defects, if, if, if they're there, they, they are very disrupted. They're, they're very disrupted. Yeah. 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 So they really, you know, the, the offspring is eliminated pretty quickly. I, I think it has probably to do with survival too. If you don't survive, if you don't have yeah. energy, you can't survive. So that's not going to really going to help. Uh, and so they, these, these animals might, you know, disappear before they're even born. That's right. Yeah. yeah, true. Before yeah. they're recognized, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we wanted to get you back on because Yola and I made um, an attempt a few episodes ago to talk about CRISPR, yeah. <laughs> and we, yeah. we kind of we you know we did our best. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Such as it was. Yeah, we, we read the 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 yellow dummies right. for CRISPR book or CRISPR for dummies book yeah. and tried to interpret it. And I right. channeled my inner Leslie, you know, the best yeah. I could. <laughs> yeah, but it just made us realize like we, we need an expert to talk about this. So it came up because of a news story talking about using CRISPR to uh, create hypoallergenic cats. So you know, using gene editing. So I think you better tell um, everybody and us what CRISPR really is. <laughs> right. We need to hear it from somebody who actually knows. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to keep it simple, CRISPR is actually uh, uh, a system that comes from like bacteria and oh. it helps to fight off foreign invaders in bacteria. 
And so just with, uh, maybe you've heard about restriction fragment, uh, restriction enzymes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of along the same lines of that. It, it allows fighting off foreign invaders. And so now we've taken that and adapted it to humans and realized that it will cut very specific sequences. And if we put very specific tags onto uh, the CRISPR design, we can edit very specific areas of the genome. So of course, what would be the first thing you would wanna do in a cat? And many people have thought of this, my group has thought of it and, and various other groups. So the paper you're talking about was put, put together by Dr. Chapman out of uh, indoor uh, uh, biotech or indoor technologies there in one of the Carolinas. And, um, and basically what they showed is they designed some CRISPRs and they knocked out in a cell line. So just growing cells, they were actually able to knock out the, the part of the gene that causes cat allergen, which is very specific, uh, the gene called FELD1. And so it just means cat allergen one, and there's a bunch of FELD one, two, three, four. Yeah. And we have later figured out that number two or three might be a globulin or albumin or something like that. So that's what people are generally allergic to when you're allergic to animals. So natural proteins that animals make and they're different from ours. And so we elicit an allergic response. But the cat has this feldy one thing that is very, very cat specific. And that becomes, what is that? What we have to remember is the cat didn't make that gene and doesn't have that gene to make us sneeze. Right. What is the cat doing with that gene? Mm -hmm. Right. 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 And what, yeah. So why is it there? Them? You know, our genomes do not, we tend to get rid of things that we're not using. Right. And so that gene is, is there for some reason. And so this group showed that they had knocked it out and it was kind of a, an introductory paper. They have not made the cat yet. And I know several groups are trying. It's an obvious thing to do. It probably could be done. CRISPR genome editing can be done in cats because we know so much about reproductive technologies in cats. Yeah. We do artificially inseminated cats and embryo technology transfers in cats. We're yeah. not so good at that at dogs yet. We can do nuclear manipulation. So a lot of the cloning, you've seen clone cats. So if you can clone a cat, you can genome edit a cat as well. And it just takes putting all the pieces together. And um, so they showed that they could do it um, in vitro, not in vivo, not in the body, but in, 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 the, in the plate. And um, so they're, they're making steps and showing their steps along the way. Probably other places have done that and just have not written the paper about yeah. it. And um, so I could see it coming. I, I'd, I'd love to be part of something like that. And um, but I think they conclude that maybe that doesn't do anything for the cat where I'm kind of thinking Feldy one might be important to me. I, I'm guessing that it might be involved with pheromones and how cats recognize one another and ah. how cats maybe talk to one another. Um, ah. They don't talk to one another with sounds. Right, right. They talk to one another with uh, body language and right. also smell. Right. Sense stuff. And so right. hence is that what Feldy, what does Feldy one do in the cat? Right. And and it's in it, it's in large feelings too. 
so not all felids, but in large felids too. So um, what is it doing? So that's really interesting, you, you know, because I, I've kind of fallen, I've just realized I've fallen into the trap when you think of like, what does a gene do? I'm thinking of like, what process does it regulate? Like what organ is it? But, you know, you pointed out that um, it can be other sort of like not necessarily metabolic things, right? Yeah. So, right. So that's, right. that's very interesting. And it, if that's the case, it might mean that you could um, deactivate or knock out that gene and physically the cat would be okay, but what would it do to the cat's ability to communicate with other cats? Yeah, yeah, so that's that's kind of what we'd have to see is once you knock it out, um, what happens? And, you get an asocial uh, cat. Yeah, you might have an asocial cat or a cat that likes people better, who, who knows? Well, you I, know? I think it might be more in the reaction of that cat to other cats, like, right? Like uh, well, but you, now we're speculating that I'm right with what it does. So <laughs> who, who knows what it what it actually does? And yeah. then what you have to remember is there's some people that are allergic to Feldy nine or Feldy one, but then there's people that are just allergic to all animals. So it's not going to fix that. Yeah. And it's yeah. not going to make the cat a um like totally uh, right? right. It's just low. And uh, so people need to be very careful about that. Mm. Yeah. But we do know that most people that are allergic to cats are allergic to that Feldy one, aren't they? So, so yes, it doesn't mean that thing. you're not allergic to trees, but if you're allergic to cats, because I'm very allergic to cats, so I'm probably allergic to Feldy one. And so a allergy-free cat would be ideal for me because then I can have a cat, although I'm still allergic for the trees. I don't care, but- Well, I, but are you allergic to other animals becomes the question. So animal yeah. proteins like albumin, sure. globulins right. and things like that. So that's that's what you have to be careful of. Sure. Yeah, sure. so you might actually, like, let's say one of these hypoallergenic cats get, gets created and you have cat allergies, you might find actually that it doesn't help you if- yeah you know, your allergy is, is a broader allergy, right? That's than right. specific to the Feld E1. So, right. so they're, they're going to have to do basically human, human trials, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Um, yeah, so which would be a big thing, big yeah. important thing to do. And I'll volunteer. They'll volunteer. <laughs> but, but then, you know, when there are some people that are so allergic to cats that they can't be yeah. in a room where a cat was, and that's where you would want to be very careful. People that really go into anaphylactic shock. Yeah, yeah true, um, true. Oh, you know, you got to be real careful with that. So, and, and going back to the original research, what they did show was that removing or crispering this specific gene does not lead to cell death. So, I mean, I think yes. that is a really important you know, yeah. it, it is really important to show that because maybe that FELD1 gene was really important for the energy, you know, yeah. and then the cell would not be able to live anymore, but that's not the case. Now, what we don't know is, is that gene important to embryo survival? Yeah, it could be so other things. Until you grow right. and actually get an embryo, then right. that, that becomes the question because we know there are some genes that are not good for embryo survival, such as polycystic kidney disease, the yeah. Manx taillessness, yeah. um, two copies of the dwarfism mutation, those, those lead to em early embryonic death. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we, that's the next step is make the embryo and then see if those embryos go on to produce. And, and you won't know 
unless you sacrifice the embryos, but you wouldn't want to do that. You want to see the kitten get on the floor, right? Yeah. And so it's not until you would have the kittens born that you would genetically type them and see whether they're knockouts or not, um, because the knockout is not 100%. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think it was at least in the the cell line work they did. It was was it around 80 percent effective? There was a, they put a percentage in anyway. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. so what they'll do is um, you know try to take the nucleus. So they might do this like you clone something, take a nucleus of a cell line, and uh, try to dif de differentiate the cell line, and then so that the cell now thinks it can be anything. All right, so that's, you have to de-differentiate. So you'll start with a fibroblast. So a cell that thinks it wants to be skin. And then you treat it in cell culture and you make it what's called plury or totipotent. Okay, and yeah. Meaning it's kind of like a stem cell. So it can become a lot of different things. And then you use the nucleus, which has your knockout in it. And you put that into an egg and uh, hopefully you know, produce uh, clone kind of cloned individuals, but they're cloned of a cell line is is, yeah. is what they're going to be clones of, right? So yeah. this this brings up um, something that Yola and I talk start to talk about a little bit too, and that's the ethics of all of this, mm. right? Yeah. Right. So I'm kind of interested in in sort of what your take is, like where are the ethical um, pressure points or pain mm -hmm. points um, in this? Well, you know, that's actually one of the best lectures I've been told I've ever given at UC Davis was the ethics of cloning in the ethics class, right? Mm. And and so if we kind of think through this, um, you're going to do this in cell culture, right? And so the biggest thing that you, well, you need a bunch of eggs. You need oocytes. Well, where are you going to get those? You're, you're going to get those from spay and neuter clinics. Right. So you're going to, which, by the way, I'm going to promote this. I was told that it's incorrect to say spay and neuter. <laughs> neuter means yes. to spay and also to castrate. And so the proper yes. word is only to neuter, not yes. spay and neuter. Yes, yes, you're, you're exactly right. Okay. But That's from Joan Coates. She said, yeah, stop saying all, that. Oh, well, then my hat's off to Joan for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, so. But we've all fallen into the spay and neuter phrase, so I'm afraid it's going to stick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that in Utrecht, uh, we are only are, are allowed to say ovariectomy or orchidectomy. Oh, okay. So you remove this specific organ and yeah. so yeah. make it even more specific. Okay. Well, in the end, however you do it, you need a bunch of ovaries. And in cell culture, you're going to actually get the eggs out of those ovaries and you're going to mature those eggs. And that can be done in the cat in vitro maturation. And then you're going to do in vitro fertilization. But the fertilization is going to be the knockout nucleus from the cell line, right? So now where do you need? So that's all good. You know, we're not using any resources that's low cost and stuff. Uh, but now what do you need is a bunch of cats that are going to carry the embryos. Yes. So you got to put a bunch of embryos into each cat. Yes. So in order to make your knockout cat, you might have 10 cats that you've put embryos into. So that means there's 10 cats that have dedicated part of their life to being involved with this. Now, with doing artificial insemination and stuff, we know with hormones, 
for embryo transfer, we can only probably do that about three times to any one cat because they'll develop antibodies to the hormones because they're not cat hormones, they're pig and horse and human hormones that we get to help time the uterus, right? So we got to time the uterus just perfectly so it's ready to want an egg. And so just like you would do in human fertilization. And, uh, and so that is probably the biggest question about the ethics is it's a minor surgery to put these embryos into the cat, less, less invasive than a spay. Um, so you just do it with a laparoscope and you can put the eggs right into the uterus. And then um, these cats might dedicate a year or so, year or two to research, and then they get adopted out. They're perfectly fine cats. They'll get spayed and adopted out. And, um, and then- Neutered, Leslie. Neutered. Neutered. That's right. That's right. We're going to stay with neutered. <laughs> and then hopefully you have some kittens that are born and they'll be, they'll be loved. They'll definitely be loved because they want those kittens to, to grow well. And the cats are going to have great health care and not be under stress in these, in these labs, because that's not conducive to um, reproduction. And so that becomes the big question yeah. is, uh, do you, are you willing to let maybe five to 10 cats be in a research lab for a year for your pleasure. Mm. And it's yeah. all about your pleasure. And, um, you know, and does anybody have to have a cat that's hypoallergenic? No, you know, so right. that's, that's the biggest part about it. So when push comes to shove, um, I probably have more of a problem with maybe more invasive um, testing things that would happen with a cat, say for uh, toxic exposures for 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 right. beauty, you know, right. when they're testing used in testing for yes. for cosmetics, yes. um, are are maybe a little more difficult for me to handle than actually doing making a cloned or knockout cat. And yes. this is a great topic to ponder because we're at the end of our first podcast with you uh, Leslie so I need to uh, I, I think it's such a great topic but I wonder if everybody that's listening to this podcast can think about this a little bit yes. so where is your line where ethics you line and do you feel that this is going too far or not because we're really solving a problem for humans uh, you know with the help of cats and is this something that you feel that we should do or not or people that are allergic for cats should just stay away from cats because that's also an option and that doesn't hurt the cat at all so great session thank you so much uh, dr leslie uh dr susan do you want to do the honors no i i got to start the opening so i think it's only oh, fair so i'll do the honors then yeah. so uh, <laughs> this is the end of the podcast we thank dr leslie for being with us you can find more information on perpodcast.net uh, we have a wonderful social media handle which is at perpodcast and if you have any questions for us uh, please drop us a note in the chat we're always excited to, to to hear what you want us to talk about. So, Dr. Susan, it was a delight. Dr. Leslie, it was even more a delight to see you and talk to you. Yeah, because um, he sees me like every week, right? Yeah, so. ha happy to be back. And there's a lot of other new and fun genetic things going on. Um, you know, these different companies are doing a lot of big panel testing. And so there's some pros and cons to that that uh, uh, maybe we'll talk about sometime in the future. Well, that yes, we'll, we'll, we'll best do that cliffhanger. In, the next, in the next one. That's a good cliffhanger. Yes, that's the what best cliffhanger. Not test for, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against True Bites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. Thank <sniffs> you.